Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Beyond Therapy. Our topic today is decolonizing grief practices through the use of ancestral and indigenous healing rituals, which is maybe sounds very specific, but it serves as a springboard for this um, broader conversation, broader applications of decolonizing counseling work as a whole. We're also going to get into the intersection of spirituality and mental health, which I think is a really critical area where we don't necessarily have a lot of training or support right now. Uh, So to have this conversation, I'm very excited to be joined by Shaniqua Ford, who is a licensed clinical social worker and group practice owner in the state of Illinois. She earned her MSW from the University of Chicago and has over 10 years of experience holding space for folks with ministry and professional training through transition, loss, and grief. As a spiritualist and therapist, she has helped folks utilize their faith traditions to cultivate healthy healing rituals to navigate both physical and ambiguous grief. So I am so thankful that you are here today. Thank you so much for having me. That's a wonderful introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So I always like to start with just some idea of what drew you to this particular work. And I know a lot of people focus on grief and loss as a function of their own experiences, but what drew you to physical and ambiguous grief specifically? So I um, started my journey when I once was a very zealous uh, Christian (laughs) and I worked heavily in ministry. And I think it really came through. I had my own set of losses, including divorce and just financial strain and stress. Um, But also being in and of a marginalized community, there is like collective loss every second. And so I I saw that in the intersection and in my faith community and prayer wasn't enough. And it made me further explore like, Of course, that's why I got into ministry and really thinking about holding space for folk. But there were limitations, right? We can pray. And also there's other things that can aid, right? And it started my journey into social work and to really wanting to affect policy and change because a lot of the grief folks were experiencing was due to chronic stress. Right. And what we consider the um, social determinants of mental health and health alike, which are, you know, what we know to be true uh, statistically are far worse for marginalized communities, period. Um, And honestly, getting into mental health was because I was good friends with folks who were utilizing prayer alone, but had comorbidities like let's say renal failure or diabetes, and we're experiencing diabetic psychosis and their doctor, they didn't know what that was. And so there was all these complexities and I wanted to work with folks. I wanted to help more coming from the type of uh, ministry I was in. We believed a lot around like fivefold ministries. And so that's like the charismatic evangelical. 
and really thinking about like spiritual emergence versus mental health emergency. And so that's where I began to dive in. I um, started late, got my associates, my bachelor's, and then my master's like all back to back. But it was during my graduate program that I was able to marry all those things by getting my master's in social work, clinical social work, as well as a certificate in public health and administration. Like most therapists, I went through the training and the internships and things and ran into the glass ceilings and the bureaucracy and wanted to create a space and place that actually made more room for my clients' whole selves, right? So if I couldn't individually make an impact at the policy level, I could do it and the one-to-one communal aspect of the work. And so that's when I launched out, built my own practice and really wanted to focus on folks who had experienced or who was consistently and chronically experiencing transition and those losses around health, around finances, around family. A lot of the folks I work with, especially during COVID, became entrepreneurs or were returning home after graduating, right? So they're young professionals or new professionals, no matter what stage of their life. And during that journey as well, specifically in marginalized communities who often go away and get educated in predominantly white institutions and then come back and want to integrate into the neighborhood and communities and family systems, that ambiguous loss (laughs) compounded with the internalized, right? racism and the microaggressions and things they experience, that's a lot. It's heavy. And so there's a process of loss and dying and grief and transition all in there. And that's the long answer of kind of how I got to this place. Well, I have so many spinoff questions. So I'm so grateful you gave the long answer. I think the thing that immediately stood out was that you got this extra training in public health. Uh, so I'm a counselor uh, by training, and something that is just across the board lacking in our training is how to effectively advocate within systems. And so I think if I had to do it over again, I'd probably be a social worker. <laughs> but here we are. Curious, like what that public health piece added to your framework for how you practice? The public health piece was actually extremely crucial. During my graduate study, it was I worked with an interdisciplinary team. So it was social workers, it was business folks, it was um, medical students and residents, policy folks. And we were put in teams on purpose, right? To think about the holistic well-being of folks. And what that offered me was A, the language, be the understanding of how to educate right clients and how to advocate for themselves and to navigate systems and to ask questions, but also to help normalize because I think a lot of folks come in and say, "Well, I'm supposed to be able to do this." I, you know, my folks sacrificed or I was offered positions where I could build and grow, and I'm noticing that. I'm experiencing this sadness and this stress and like this uh, block around fear and imposter syndrome. What is it? And we can talk about the social determinants of health that is limiting their ability to right have access to certain 
basic needs. And then we can talk about how those are also affecting their overall emotional and psychological well-being and how we can curate. So in my practice, one thing all my folks start off with (laughs) is we're building a community care plan, right? So I believe, I forget the organization right now, came out of uh, California, but they came out with pod mapping, right, as a social justice intervention and plan. And so what it offers is a visual visual representation of these layers of resources and support folks could access, right? And so we make that part of our practice because your therapist should not be your only resource, right? What else do you have access to that maybe are underutilized resources that can be a part of your community care plan? And so I think the public health piece helped with that. It helped with building resources on the onset. Now, mind you, I am in private practice, so it comes with a different level of care. I came out of community mental health, right? They have more access to resources to put folks in wraparound care, Whereas group practice and private practice, we don't quite have that. Not at my level, at least. We are not like um, CARF programs (laughs) Um, yet. But currently what we hope to do is actually just become a wellness center because the other piece is, is drawing in folks' natural resources, remedies, and community healing practices um, such as energy work, meditation, mindfulness. and then. For some of us, old school, you know, our practices that our grandmothers did, which is like prayer and having whaling rooms and things like that. Feels like it speaks so directly to what I feel like I have found to be so challenging in private practice and similarly in a group practice setting is uh, really being confident about connecting clients to community resources because you know, I might have a few names for some, you know, for primary care folks that I've heard are inclusive and who address these social determinants of health, but maybe I don't have direct experience with that group, you know, so it feels like I I can't make a lot of real good promises to folks about what kind of care they're going to get, particularly if they're from a marginalized group. I think that's the fair piece, right? And that's when it comes the issue of like decolonizing our practices plays a pivotal role, right? We can acknowledge that I can make links and connection. I can't promise you anything, right? And so even myself being in the communities and participating, like the truth is being an African-American woman who has lived most of her life right below poverty line and access for the sake of my own life, right? Um, some of these resources, being able to navigate them and then right, be in the position where I am now of owning my own practice and cultivating a group practice, there's still connections I can make that I can't promise it will go smoothly, right? Because this is life and life lives and systems do the things systems do. Um, But I think the honesty, the transparency, and the vulnerability, what ushers in the healing and the building, right, Mm. of trust. Wow, that feels like such a powerful 
thought to reflect on, you know, and especially as I think, you know, kind of putting this in a little bit of a different context of uh, educating providers. I know when I was a new clinician, I don't know if this resonates with you, but I see it a lot in new clinicians. There is this urge to fix, this urge to have real concrete answers. And yet what you name here, I think is so important that you don't have to have answers. You have to have presence and the vulnerability piece and a willingness to be with. hundred percent. And that's part of our decolonized training practices is the use of self in this space and saying, how about, and this is one of my major things. So it's like, why can't we heal together? Right. And that when we're going through processes, especially when we're going through grief processes. Like if you want to show up as a therapist, counselor, whatever your acronym, but you are in this space, please don't show up as though you are coming in to save anyone. Can you be human with me? Can you affirm the practices in which are great that you didn't even think about and also offer the reciprocity and the communalness of just holding space? And so that is one of the huge parts of grief processes of communities of color, indigenous communities specifically. It's this aspect of just being with, whether it's bringing food and, you know, storytelling. Or whether it's just sitting and offering water as one wails and purges the emotion and allowing that to happen and normalizing it uh, versus saying like, okay, so let's go through these stages right now. This is what you're experiencing. Like, that's cool for folks who are A-type personalities and want foreshadowing. They all have their place, but showing up as human first, I think, is the key. But as therapists, we have to be comfortable enough in ourselves to be able to do that. And our credentialing and accreditations and licensure folks uh, often, right, tell us, well, you should have this wall. And it's not effective. It's just not. Well, and I think you're you're pointing at this with, you know, this sense of shared human experience between a counselor and a client, being present. If you could kind of unpack a little bit uh, what it means to decolonize counseling or therapeutic work and and maybe even kind of draw some distinctions between like decolonizing and deconstructing, because I feel like those are often used interchangeably and incorrectly. Yes. And yes, <laughs> I agree. And I want to honor that there are several definitions of decolonizing things. Most thought about is really saying undoing colonial practices. And there's a lot of argument and tension and disagreement around if that's even a possibility, right? Versus deconstructing means to acknowledge that it is present and there, and we can actually unpack, move the pieces, tear it down and rebuild it. Hmm. So I understand how they are used interchangeably, and I think it is really important. Now, I don't have a finalized answer of <laughs> because I, I recognize that in some moments I'm saying, let's deconstruct this practice. And then sometimes I'm really wanting to pull back and say, like, if colonialism had never happened, 
what would this look like and can we access it? Oh, that feels like such a useful question to frame the difference. Like if colonialism had never happened. But for me, when I talk about decolonizing and even deconstructing or unlearning, that's another one. I talk about returning to the framework of the self. So for me, this practice is political. For me, this practice is spiritual. And I know that isn't always true for everyone. So I can speak from myself um, and the communities I serve. In terms of folks who I work with, we are often in agreement in terms of um, framework and worldview in that way. And for me, it means putting this approval and stamp on how things should go in terms of order that supports white supremacist delusion and that supports capitalism to the detriment of all of those involved. I'm talking about decolonizing in that way, uh, right? So the promotion of folks actually taking back their power, honoring self-education and wisdom over million-dollar institution of <laughs> these education systems that are actually really building employees versus folks who have freedom in their life to choose and to do, right? And that can feel very big and large and ambiguous. And I think that's part of the practice is to let it feel uncertain. So part mm. of our work is heavy, heavily regulated and really big on evidence-based, evidence-based. But if you're paying attention, these things that are now coming out as evidence-based, like IFS, somatic experiencing, these are all old practices, some even esoteric practices that we have academics, specifically and predominantly European Western academics putting their stamp on it and because they have the resources and the access points to make this evidence-based, now this is a clinical format. When my great-grandmother, right, was practicing breath work and breathing in, she just might call it the spirit of God and get an effort, right? I super connect to the truth around appropriating in the service of evidence-based practice ways of being and doing in the world that have been around forever. Because especially um, like internal family systems, another link that I know to be there is that that is basically like Vipassana practice from Theravada Buddhism. And some of the practice from the Wahika tribe, right? Calling in the, the elements yeah. and the directions. And so, yes, and shamanism. All those things are showing up in our practice as, you know, from, unfortunately, our leaders. And it's stamped as more credible than what our communities have already been telling us is supporting and helpful for them. So when folks come into practice, first thing I want to know is how have you been taking care of yourself and how did you see your family take care of themselves? What are the practices that you value and how can we build them here? That sounds like such a powerful starting point. It is. And it offers our clients the self-determination, the autonomy and remembering their internal resources because they do have them despite what the world is telling them or their circumstance or their situation or this heavy feeling of loss. Right. 
because now we're in the space of having to reinvent or begin again. I feel like I need to sit quietly with all of these things for a while. (laughs) Oh gosh. Yeah. There's so many places I feel like to go with that. I'm curious. I think one thing that did show up was, and maybe it connects to something you were saying earlier about the grief that comes from being a person of color who gets trained in a PWI and comes back to their community. But like, what is lost in this process of appropriating and white centering? And yeah, I mean, just that feels like a grief process too. What do you feel is lost in that poor translation? So for me, it comes back to identity. There's this um, assumption that now what I've taken in and learned is superior to that which raised and allowed me to survive and cultivated my essence before entering into this space, right? And it's this managing this respectability politics. Mm. You know, I love the idea and the thought of, you know, folks elevating and doing all these things. But there is, if we're honest, this very fine line of, say, for instance, when folks say Black excellence, it's often mimicked by what white supremacist delusion has said is successful for the collective, which is not always true. But it is what often it takes to be sustainable to an extent, at least financially and materially in this nation but I don't know if it is actually aiding folks in being spiritually, emotionally, or psychologically sustained. So, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the bigger pieces that is lost. It's this identity piece where folks really have to do the work to really ex- say, like, how do I now relate in the same ways? How do I, um, something my grandmother used to say, eat the meat and spit out the bone. Right. And how do I find a place? The other piece that is lost is also some individuality. Most folks go away to school and they have this moment of independence where maybe when when they were back home and in community, they were a major um, provider, nurturer, person who gave care. Right. And so. When folks go away and come back, often it's like, oh, you have a degree now, so you definitely have a responsibility. When the reality is, statistically, most folks who graduate are coming back and financially are not in much different circumstances, depending on the industry, of course. And so it's really like working with that grief of who I was supposed to come back as, and maybe Mm -hmm. I haven't yet. For some folks, if they are from first-generation immigrant or migrant families, it also looks like I lost some independence because I'm now back in the home and a part of the system and maybe helping this family system move and operate, whereas I got a moment to be just me, an individual. So there's a lot of integration, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of negotiation that has to transpire, which aids or adds to the grief that folks experiencing when reemerging with community. And part of that is because 
we have not we as a people have not been good at keeping the bridge of community and education aligned so that folks have like a constant there's a constant evolution of all the things versus when I came back everything's still the same or I feel so disconnected how do I reintegrate and I'm not saying the work isn't being done so let me be clear because I think there are some good programs and communities out here that are very intentional I know faith communities attempt to do it a lot as well but it's still in my experience and from the folks that I sit with it is lacking and I think that would help with some of the psychological strain and stress and environmental stresses that go on with that transition thinking about a person of color who is then going kind of leaving to some extent their community going to a PWI what is required in terms of code switching and editing and I mean the grief that comes with having to become a different version of yourself to function in one space so I mean I yeah I'm hearing all these spaces of forgiveness and healing and just yeah I mean how much of a spiritual crisis it could be to make these moves and travel in these different spaces. Absolutely. And then we see the increase in, right, suicidality, family ruptures, loss of community, and this idea of chosen family versus family of origin, because we might have grown up and what mainstream and dominant narratives say are toxic family environments and unfortunately a lot of the counseling practices say it's always the parents fault right and so like we are and a lot of folks have, haven't had exposure to these conversations and so now we're coming back like oh there is conflict there's division and so a lot of the work that I do and that's even in generations just being different my my parents' generation and prior get one good job, have a pension, take care of your family, you good, right? My generation, my children, <laughs> like we don't want to work for nobody, a eh? because the system is abusive and harmful and does not tap into our sole purpose and creativity, like that could be utilized and maximized for collective good. And now we have this tension between intergenerational trauma that says we had to do this to survive and we're, show we're telling you how to survive. And we have another generation who's saying, but there's a better way. And I think I can access actually thriving and doing more than surviving. How do we, again, it comes back for me, at least, to integration. And the both and using the practices and tools and communication styles and the creativity that works, but also in the ones that help in expansion um, and advancement and progress. And PWIs are a part of that. I'm not going to lie, right? I graduated my master's was set in private PWI. Um, but there had to be intentional effort and in grounding myself in who I wanted to be. I had an advantage. I was a whole adult. I wasn't a young adult. I returned to school when I was in my 30s. And that also makes a difference as this with this framework and as being a counselor and therapist with lived experience and maturation. Yeah, I'm connecting with just how vulnerable young and emerging adults are, you know, to the negative impacts of these systems. And same, like in terms of, 
So I did kind of more of a traditional sort of trajectory for my master's. And then I worked for a while and got my doctorate. And a lot of the people who were in my cohort were went straight through. So we were significantly younger. It chewed them up and spit them out in ways that I was like, why? <laughs> why are you letting us get to you? But right? yeah, it's so painful to watch <laughs> how invested they were in the way the institution was defining success. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the biggest grief collectively that we're experiencing is this loss of idealism and to what is possible and real. And so it's very fine line, but like, again, ritual and spiritual practices, communal aspects of dream work. Like I love Trisha Hersey's rest is resistance and then that ministry of like really imagining and not being forced to labor. But that's where a lot of the grief currently is specifically with our young adult clients. It's this, this is who I'm supposed to be based on dominant narrative, based on maybe expectations of family because they struggled through and they did it, or they didn't have the opportunity to, and I'm the first gen. And so really allowing them to sit with that and begin to redefine for themselves what success looks like, what in our practice, I do a lot of somatic work. So I'm like, what does this feel like in your body? If I, that should be my bumper sticker, because that's all I ever ask people anymore. (laughs) Well, and I feel like you're already, you're hitting on this already, but maybe we'll kind of turn more directly toward what do you see in terms of when clients first come to your practice, what are some of the trends that you notice in terms of what they're grieving and how they're grieving? Yeah. So the what they're grieving is variant, right? It could be physical losses, usually of close family members and elders. I am in the Chicagoland area. So oftentimes it is not natural death. It's usually very surprised and maybe violent. The trends are often, I don't know how to grieve and I just want it to be over. How do I get to feeling better? And having to uh, really push back and say, like, there's no cure for grief. And why would you want to push through this? Right. So systemically, we know folks are like, well, I got to because I don't get paid and I am not at a place of functioning where I can go to work. So I need to figure out how to reconcile my emotions enough for me to show up and do my work so I can still get a check and pay bills, right? Show me how to do that. So if we go back to that original question that you mentioned around what would things look like if colonialism had never happened, do you have the sense that part of of that would include a lack of uh, urgency to get through grief? Because I hear you tying that so well to capitalism and the need to continue working. So if we take that out of the picture, is grief a fundamentally more natural process? Absolutely. If we were allowed to really fall into the circadian rhythms of life and nature and just our being, grief is a natural, the life death cycle is a hundred percent natural. Right. And so I think one of the major things is A, having community to support you in that, right? So removing a capitalistic framework. Ancestral traditions were the casserole, right? Like, let me bring you food for as long as you need it. 
because as a community, we have more than enough. Let me watch the kids and let you cry it out. And then at some time frame when folks knew you were also ready, it's, hey, let me come get you at the house and let me allow you to usher yourself back into the daily living. We don't have that luxury currently, at least it doesn't feel like folks have it. And so they also feel, and the other thing that comes up in this practice is working with folks' guilt around needing to take time and space to be sad. Well, X, Y, Z died and we just had to push through. My grandparents pushed through, and but they were, and so really slowing it down to access points and saying, but did you see them still actively grieving? In what ways? To be able to say, like, were they still accepting community care? Did they have it? Right? Because sometimes folks could go to work and be taken care of too. So we're doing the thing, but I have a community of folks that I trust and that I can be vulnerable with that will show up for me. And that might actually do some of my work. So I can still show up, but I might be able to put for it 45% because I have a, a tribe or a collective of folks who are in it. And so it's those things that show up, this guilt around this, first of the pressure to survive, this guilt around taking up too much space and sadness. I don't, I've heard so many times, well, I don't want to be the Debbie Downer and I don't want to walk around sad and depressed all the time because what does that help? And so there is also this deep indoctrination that if you're not being productive, you are a burden. And we talk a lot in my practice about like birth rights and just natural, like you have the rights and you are deserving of feeling all the feelings related to loss. I'm curious, how do you help people get in touch with that sense of birthright? Because I feel like, especially when I'm working with white clients and I talk about your inherent worth and it's your birthright to, you know, have a sense of wholeness and they're just like, it just, there's no framework for that. So how do you help people like connect to that in an embodied kind of way? So in an embodied way, we go back to just really questioning, (laughs) we go back to like inner child, right? Um, And really kind of removing the cloak of you are more than just what you do. And I really, and so again, depending on folks' frameworks and understanding and the meaning they make in which, why they were born, why during this timeline, why this space, I really utilize their core beliefs and values around life to bring them back to um, and to be able to work with that, that question around deservingness and birthright and all of that, which can be conflated. I mean, to say the truth, it's just like um, it can, it's complicated. And I sit with them in the struggle of parsing that out. For a lot of my clients, we're talking about birthright in the sense of um, survival of our ancestry through chattel slavery, through civil rights, through all of these moments, um, and really separating our beingness 
from humanness, from folks operating in a system that is holding us hostage to survive. Like you have to work in order to live. Is that true? A hundred percent. Is there ways away like around that? And then maybe complicated and it might not be comfortable and it's usually not what they want to hear, but we go with the miracle question. Like for real, for real, if you lose this job and this goes away, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> and so and most times folks are like, yeah, it would be, it wouldn't get that far. I'm resourceful. I do have community. And so we begin to break it down in that way. And then in that space, they get to choose. That might be true and I could let it, but this is where I would want to pick it up. So now we're back to self-determination and we're back to self-empowerment, to choosing how we go through. And that kind of helps them connect. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, it's not a linear line. <laughs> and it would. the truth is some folks won't connect. I know I um, I created a journal I was trying to see if it was close by. Um, I created a journal that's called Notes of Existence. And I really created it and cultivated after sitting with a client, um, an African-American male client, who we had to do a lot of work around the purpose for his existence that was so attached to productivity, status, right? And all these things, because he worked in a he worked in a or works in a position where like he is one of few African American folks in a boardroom. What does that look like for when you really think about like what is my purpose? And we had to sit with you are worthy and deserving just because you exist, just because you have breath in your body. And for him. I don't know that it was attaching it to a birthright just as much as it was attaching to the fact that you live and breathe is enough. And so in this journal, it actually just, it's really like just a free writing journal, but it asks in the sidebar and says, I exist to, for, and, and there's another prompt to really let folks like write it out. Because if we are identifying that we exist to work, that feels problematic and unsustainable. What happens when we can no longer work and need to retire? Or acquire disability and or can't work. That part. These are the ways in which I think we are unprepared for grief and we're not allowed, for, right? If we begin to have a conversation of how grief needs to be interwoven in every phase of life and transition and how to engage it as a natural process and not something that takes away, but something that offers. So one of the pieces is with every ending, there is a beginning, there's regeneration possible. Then I think it would be much easier for us to wholly and fully grieve, not even just individually, but collectively. Maybe could you speak more to collective grief? Um, yeah, maybe just whatever sort of initial thoughts come to mind around what it is, how it functions, how it's missing. How it's missing is huge. Um, I think in the last five plus years, we've uh, heard more conversations around collective grief. Um, I think it's always happening. I think folks are just now naming it with all the things around police brutality and 
right? These mass shootings and there's no way you can see this amount of harm and not be affected. But we have been conditioned to be very individualistic. If it's not me or my four no more, then I have a, there's this understanding this thought process that folks have come to understand them, it doesn't involve me. So I can't, you know, consider it. Um, I shouldn't be attached to it. There's a whole lot of what I should and shouldn't do that I find is available. So folks feel weird. I have clients that come in and it's like, that was really sad. And if there was, you know, a police um, violence and loss of life, I'm sad and I don't know why we've had those conversations. And the reality is, is because it could be any of our family members and it's unjust mass shootings. Again, this fear and understanding that folks feel it, um, but don't talk about it and having the openness of talking about it. So when we talk about collective grief, we're talking about acknowledging that the harm that, folks outside of us experience shows up as fear in our body that we could somehow experience it too and we feel helpless to support or prevent Mm. right and so we go into overdrive and so what me and my clients talk through and work through is like well are you really helpless and are there ways in which you could put forth energy some way, form, or fashion, whether it is monetary exchange, whether it is volunteerism, whether it is within your prayer and meditation space, are those ways in which you can engage and aid in the collection of grief? If it's gathering, if it's talking about lives lived, if it's support and protest and marching, if it's sending meals. Right. So, again, reminding of the power of the collective, bringing folks together, having conversations, offering support, mutual aid. That's what collective grief looks like, but also giving folks permission to discuss it, to have feelings about it. And to normalize and make the connections or help folks make the connections to like, oh, this is actually where this is coming from. The other piece is, again, around your framework and worldview. I come from one that says that we're, it's all connected, period. And so to act like this extension of me is not, a, like, a, is affected. I myself am not affected. That is dissonance and delusion. That's how I engage it and we talk about it. But I come from the understanding that we truly can heal together. And in many ways, that was instilled in me by my experience in the Black church, right? We had a wailing room. So if we couldn't do anything else, we could cry out. At the end of the day, it's an energetic exchange. I am acknowledging and identifying there was a loss connected to me or right distant. And I respect and honor that energy. And this is the way in which I feel I can aid. Um, So, yeah. I don't know. I mean, something that that it brought up as you were talking about taking some sort of action 
as a function of collective grief, you know, so whether it's protesting or offering money or doing something to acknowledge that you have this felt connection, um, even if you don't have the same lived experience, that feels like that could be such a game changer, particularly I'm thinking about like counseling programs are like real late to the game in terms of adding advocacy and activism as a like concrete and fundamental part of our professional identities. And I think I see so many people, particularly white people, um, because that's the majority of the profession is white women, um, getting hung up on, but what will my activism do? How will it fix? And so getting hung up in this sort of learned helplessness as if the only way that activism matters is if there's like an immediate and direct change, which like, yeah, that's a big part of activism. But I hear you also naming like, what if you just show up to grieve with people? You know, what if you just show up in solidarity and hopefully change will come from that. But even if it doesn't immediately have a meaningful function through connection. And so this is this is what is always interesting to me because we as therapists and counselors, we say these things like, well, we need it to mean something. And the curiosity for me is we talk to our clients all day long about having an attachment to it, one specific outcome. And how does that serve you? Are we really talking about impact? Are we talking about this um <laughs> locus of control and feeling like you have right your ego is saying I've done something that made right like you are now making this about you and so I think yes we want change ideally and also I think we have to honor the fact that like any one individual is not doing that so what are all the small micro pieces that we could actually be engaging in, not for a specific outcome, but just for being versus doing that would aid in minimizing the suffering that folks are experiencing? Yeah, I think that is such a critical point is like the role that ego plays. And also, I think that's sort of um, another insidious aspect of that individualism if you work hard enough, you'll be fine kind of narrative, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of thing. Is that like, if we can just make the change and then everybody's equal and then I don't have to worry about this anymore. So I have then eradicated some of my suffering and can go back to my regular life. So still it's about me, but suffering doesn't end. No, it doesn't. It's about how we show up, engage in our being with that which we are suffering. And I think that is, we come from this westernized lens. That's how we're taught. That's how we educated that there should be a cure and there should be a fix. But often, right? And because this psychological distress is disease. And I'm like, it can lead to disease 100%, but it doesn't have to be engaged as disease. It can be engaged as exactly what it is. Um, but yeah, it, it's a struggle in that sense, because I think where a lot of a more Eastern philosophy and indigenous philosophy and, you know, philosophies from the continent really more embody the being, the experience, the presence and the sovereignty in those things is the, oh, let's correct fix, manipulate, and provide illusion for. 
And so basically y'all setting folks up for failure. And that's one of was one of my main issues getting into this practice of therapy is I was like, listen, you want me to provide just coping skills? Cope like who is helping folks cope for oppression and discrimination, right? And lack of humanitarian rights. I'm not about that life. So how do you know I get into this and aid in the work of creating autonomy, self-determination, and practice in which folks can take it control of their own lives. And coping is a piece of it. And also there's a whole, whole host of more things that need to be in place. So I don't come in. And I think that's one of the issues in our field is <laughs> we think like, oh, everybody should just go to therapy and they'll be fine. No, they won't. They need to go to therapy. They need to have community and go to their barber, right? They m- need mentors. Some need executive coaches. Some need community gardens because that's how it's, it's therapy is not one size fits all. And so for folks to be fully sustainable in life and to flow with the natural rhythm of life, Right. Therapy has its place. But so do these other things that actually, you know, what we have coined as the social determinants, they need to be thought about and included. And if we as therapists can do that for folks and aid in those connections, even if it's just the planting of the seed of what resources do you have access to and how have you felt when you've accessed them before? I'm wondering, especially as I'm hearing some of the things that you likely kind of bring to your sessions, you know, these sort of like questions of like, well, okay, so you say you're depressed, but why are you here? Like, why are you on this earth? I'm imagining some clients being like, I thought we were going to do coping skills. <laughs> so I'm I'm wondering like what, and it may not be on the client end, it could be on the insurance end or other systemic pieces. Like what challenges have you met by being really committed to and embodying this sort of decolonized way of practicing? There've been a lot, right? So thinking about truth telling and understanding it, making sure folks are educated first and foremost. So insurance companies are definitely, you know, something to deal with. And like, so folks who are coming in and they're like, oh, I just want to be a better person. And I'm like, what does that mean? Let me tell you what medical necessity is, how you're choosing to invest and what that looks like. And is there a way that we can, you know, actually formulate a plan that would help you engage maybe different types of systems and get what you need? And you know that as the therapy practice isn't always beneficial to the bottom line in terms of finances, but it's really having this meaning and believing in my core mission and value, which is really helping folks to tap into their internal sense of knowing ancestral wisdom, right? So they can actually evolve, transform and transition into, you know, a thriving life. The barriers also are folks saying like, well, I have XYZ diagnosis and this is a life sentence. And I'm like, says who and why do we have to be? I will never forget working with a postdoctoral student who had been diagnosed for years with OCD and bipolar disorder and had chosen to come off of medication. But 
was having a really hard time when they engaged me and said, like, I might be thinking about going back and engaging, you know, medication management. And so after our first month of sessions together, we talked about like, okay, so what happens if we don't resist what's happening? What happens if we just pay attention to your patterns? Like, because in the moment she was not self-destructive, she was not harming herself or others. And she had a good level of self-awareness of when her right manic moments were presenting or were on their verge of presenting. But she also had a lot of environmental stressors included being in interracial relationship during an election season. Like there was all this other stuff that was happening to exacerbate. And so she came to the understanding of like, if I understood my cycles, if I knew what skills worked best when certain cues and triggers were showing up, I actually, she was well-managed and did not have to re-engage. Now, did we still keep our psychiatrists on deck? Absolutely. <laughs> Sometimes those things are barriers because folks are like, well, you're not telling me what folks have told me in the past. I don't think I trust you because the dominant narrative says this is what has control over me and I don't have power or choice. So I've come up against that a lot in practice and I've had clients try to quit me because they're like, I don't know what we're doing. I feel like I'm coming here and I'm talking too much. And I'm like, this is session three. I'm not sure. Can you share with me what you would like to happen? And they, a personality types often. I was like, oh, so you want to feel that you have a sense of control and you know where this is going. But that's part of your anxiety. <laughs> so can we talk about that? So those are the things that we come up against. Um, the other pieces is really, it's definitely can be structural and working against a lot of folks, um, deeply rooted core beliefs and values, whether that be faith, tradition, spirituality, and saying how much I can say versus how much I should say. And I don't want to say this because you might think I'm suicidal and then you're going to have to commit me. So I'm going to avoid that. And so we have to have a conversation about honesty and I can show up as much as you show up, but it's a lot of building trust, but also not shaming. Cause I'm like, I understand why you don't want to tell me the truth. I'm very clear. And so when you're ready, but we're going to continue to know that there's an elephant in the room that we want to walk around. Um, I think the other piece too, is really being that part of not shaming and being like, no, I actually understand. And it's fine. I trust you to lead me where you want to go because my job is to support you. I came into this practice like I'm not about to be one of those therapists that keep folks in therapy for three and four years. That's ridiculous. And then I started getting with some folks who weren't ready to tell their whole truth. And so while we graduated certain aspects of their their treatment plan and their original goals, then I look up and I'm like, we're talking about transitioning. And now new things are being revealed. And I'm like, oh, so we can't quite graduate you from therapy yet. It looks like we got some more work to do. Um, and me as a clinician had to really sit with that. And that, again, that's because I came from a community mental health space where it was just band-aids, 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 band-aids. It wasn't healing. And so the way I work, part of that reason is I want folks to experience true healing, not just band-aids. 
Yes, I know. I feel like we, I didn't take us all over the board. So again, I, <laughs> no, that is 100% what I like want to happen. I sometimes am like, why do I send people questions? Because I know I'm going to ask different questions. <laughs> But it's always better that way, you know, because just like you're describing the therapeutic process, it unfolds. You can't predict it. Like, I mean, I think learning, I feel like is we should have space for that to be the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's so that's part of the reason that I'm I'm building out the things I'm building out. I ideally um, a fellowship program and then the course helping folks who want to go into group practice build, you know, anti-oppressive practices that center the humans that they are in work with their colleagues, but also the clients in which that enter the threshold of their doors. And that's the other reason why I do this work, right? Clearly, I cannot do it alone. So really, it's going to take all of us working together, being aware, cognizant, intentional, of the way we show up, the way we practice, the way we utilize our privilege as degreed, licensed folks to, you know, understand these systems and kind of work within them. That, yeah, that, that building community piece, like within the profession, that feels so critical, you know, because especially if one of the predominant capitalistic narratives is around competition, there's just not room for that in healing. No, or the new narrative that is like build a seven figure practice and then sell it. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Hedge funds. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Well, no, that is not. I think that needs to be like the title is have Have you noticed that hedge fund managers are the ones promoting your seven figure practice program? <laughs> right. Because again, we come back to that purpose. For who? Right? What are you in this for? And yes, great, make your money. And then also, what does that impact? This is all energetic. What are you energetically exchanging? If folks are going to build, I would love to aid in building equitable thoughtful, intentional practices that engage people like community and village and tribe (laughs) that is concerned with overall well-being versus only, you know, the cash out price. So, well, maybe we can wrap up just to name that. I mean, I hear how you are doing work that sounds like is very outside of the traditional sort of very narrow framework of what therapy is supposed to be and what grief is supposed to be. So I would imagine that comes with certain challenges and it can be maybe really draining at times. So I'm curious, how do you take care of yourself? The same ways I tell my clients to take care of themselves. Oh, so you like actually do what you tell people to do. That's so weird. Who does that? (laughs) <laughs> Who does that, right? Um, and sometimes needing to get better at that, right? So um, definitely with community, I am very intentional of relationships I build and access points to be able to express and to release. I'm very big in rituals. So for me, like 
cycles of the moon that allows for setting intentions or releasing. I'm really big on energetic exchanges, but also like um, I do like smudging. So it's like burning incense and resins and sages and things. And I'm, again, a spiritualist, so a lot of prayer and meditation, but movement, taking time to know who's in my body, like doing this work. I also have to be like, is this mine or am I carrying something or someone else's? And that is a practice I go through several times a day um, on purpose. And if I'm not practicing good hygiene, then it may be, you know, once a day or once every other day. And I'm like, oh, why do we feel like this? Because the reality is, is as much as our our folks talk about transference, counter-transference and all this stuff, it's energetic exchanges and we have to keep good hygiene. I say good spiritual hygiene, but just good hygiene energetically. Um, so yeah, those are the ways I do that. Movement has really been helpful. Um, I am a person who loves the water. So any chance I get to put my hands or my feet or my body in water, that is also very helpful. And so depending on the season, we do that a whole lot more than usual. Intentional clearing spaces, that also means cleaning. So being able to wipe down and reorganize. That is That has been one of the bigger ones for me recently because it's been really cold here. So it's the movement within my house, but also like the lightning of my house. So getting rid of things, wiping down walls, um, going through different times of the month and kind of like getting a nice thick smoke cloud of <laughs> white sage, palo santo or um, copal resin and like open up the windows and letting, you know, the ions. There is science behind it, folks, I promise. <laughs> Rebalancing the ions. If it works, if it didn't work, don't fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the ways in which I do it. But a huge part of that is having like-minded community and folks that, you know, are present with me. Presence is huge. Well, I so appreciate you uh, coming on this journey that did not at all follow the questions with me. And I mean, yeah, just what an inspirational path you have carved. Just speaking of energy, I mean, just like your groundedness and is just like, even through, you know, this computer system, it's like, it's just so there. So I think, yeah, I'm, your clients are just so lucky to have you. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity even to share this space. Um, I'm excited and hopefully we will continue staying in community and working together moving forward. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>